Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McClanahan and this episode is a break from the norm. We're not exploring an area of practice, a social policy issue or a campaign. Today we're discussing a life in social work. The life in question is that of my guest Patrick O'Day. Earlier this year Patrick published his memoir, I Who Had It Figured Out. The book charts his upbringing in 1950s Dublin, his years as a social work student at Trinity College, his beginnings in youth and community work and a career in probation. It comes full circle to overview Patrick's position as a social work educator in his alma mater and onto his work advising a hedge fund, a role I imagine the young 1970s utopian may have had questions about. The book is engaging, enlightening and at times funny. It's my hope that Patrick is as good in person as he is on the page. Patrick, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. No pressure. How are you doing? It's, it's a great opportunity for me. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for coming up. Um, listeners know that we normally make episodes remotely over Zoom, but Patrick has come up from Dublin to the Basel Northern Ireland office, so it's lovely to be here face-to-face uh, having a proper chat. Um, Patrick, you in the book, the opening chapter of the book, uh, it's, it spans your whole life. Um, you write about what you term your benign and rich beginning in life, and you discuss the burden of good fortune that you experienced. Tell me about your early years. Well, I was born on 244 North Circular Road in Dublin, uh, and we had at the end of the road a cattle market, the biggest cattle market in Europe. A million animals were um, bought and sold every year. And that was scary as a child. Uh, they Sometimes the cows came into the garden. They owned the street on a Wednesday. So good fortune after my... Uh, and also St. Brendan's uh, Psychiatric Hospital was around the corner, 2,000 patients. That was scary as a child when I didn't have a very refined understanding of mental illness, mental health, well-being. So at about age six, we moved to my grandparents' house in Sandy Mount, which was magnificent, opposite the sea, big gardens, big house, full of charm, full of character, freezing cold, drafty. And uh, yeah, for a very large family, it was a, a lovely home. And Sandy Mount is an affluent part of Dublin? Sandy right? Mount is. It's uh, it, it's an affluent part of Dublin. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was like with the family, I was a large family. My parents um, had 12 children, two died as infants. So I'm, uh, if I call it a family of 12, I'm the eighth. If I call it a family of t- 10, I'm the, the seventh. Um, and uh, and that though in itself, the Patrick, it's not normal for, well, it's, that's not unusual for a family size these days. And also it's not usual for a family to have had children that die in that way. Did that have an impact on you psychologically, do you think, growing up? Well, certainly, I mean, I do have a vague memory of the second child dying, which was on Christmas Day, 1963. And the child was about six weeks old. Maeve was the baby's name. And yeah, it was a, a Christmas. And I again, I didn't understand, you know, death and graveyards and all that. But yeah, that, that stays with me. Um, it does, yeah. But the burden of good fortune, your dad was a doctor. Um, so what, what did you mean by that, the burden of good fortune? Because I suppose you've been reflecting on things about your childhood that were more difficult, traumatic. But in terms of you, you felt you had a, a privileged start in life? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't pampered. We weren't affluent. There weren't very few luxuries. It was, you know, hand-me-down clothes. 
um, uh, you know, there was a lot of wear and tear on the house because of 12 people living in it. Um, So it, it didn't feel like luxury. However, I suppose there are social class markers of like my father, a doctor, or living in Sandy Mount or the school I went to that would identify it, you know, as a a, a background of privilege. Um, But yeah, it was it it was um, it was a a secure start. Uh, There was a lot of relaxed routines. As I say, the house was spacious, full of charm, character. The climate was very respectful, a lot of trust there. You just got on with things. I suppose as later when I became a social worker, I used to uh, smile every time somebody produced the frozen faced experiment with the, about attachment, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, uh, because that sort of uh, mother and child, that um, model uh, didn't seem to apply to if you were the seventh of, yes. <laughs> of 10 or the eighth of 12, the, yes. that sort of uh, uh, model of attachment. I, I asked many teachers about it and uh, yeah, it, it wasn't designed for polygamy or wasn't designed for large families. Yes. You explained that the seeds for social work were sown early with you. What what influence did your parents have on your outlook? My parents, my first of all, even though we had such a big family, my parents were good at having their own social life. Um, they were, my mother was a stylish woman. Uh, they were both handsome couple, very admired in the community. Um they didn't let themselves be ground down by the weight of such a big family, but financially it was tight. Um, and my father had made choices around his practice areas of medicine in that he worked as a what was called a dispensary doctor, which was a salaried position. And he, um, as I've mentioned, he had the porter triage people coming in and he looked after people who were sick. At night time, he'd be going around the north inner city tenements, mending limbs and delivering babies. So he made a very clear choice towards public service Mm -hmm. uh, medicine. And similarly, when he worked in what was initially called St. Kevin's Hospital and later St. James's. And as a child, I thought they had named it after him, which is a nice benign memory. but he transformed that hospital with others from um, what he would have described as a poor hospital for poor people into, you know, it's a leading teaching hospital, high quality medical care now. Um, and so he, he he was both a clinician and and uh, a, a sort of medical politician. And um, what we in social work talk about the, the micro and the macro, he could move between both. Um, and similarly, my mother reached out to people who needed support, having meals in our house, bringing people who needed a holiday uh, on our family holiday, which was 20 miles away to the resort of Skerries. So both of them um, showed, you know, a duty of care to others um, and were very respectful towards anyone that they came across in life. And you mentioned school, you went to Belvedere College and I was really fascinated to learn this because James Joyce attended Belvedere and it forms the setting for quite a section of the portrait of the artist as a young man. Um, Joyce's account doesn't elicit a great deal of warmth. That was my reading of it at least. What was your experience like at school? It was mixed. 
first of all, I, I was the first year, free education came into uh, Ireland, free second level education in 1967, the year I started secondary school and 92% of schools opted into free education. Some held out in order to get bigger grants from uh, the government um, if they were to stop charging fees and some on principle or for their own reasons didn't enter the free education scheme. So that was that I'm not quite sure the rationale that Belvedere didn't and I suspect that it was something about prestige. Okay. Um and prestige, I mean it was there's some very significant past pupils that went mm-hmm. to Belvedere. So Patrick O'Day, uh, mm, <laughs> James mm. Joyce, Garrett Fitzgerald, who went on to become Taoiseach, Cahill Brewer and Joseph Plunkett, who both participated in Easter Rising. Eamon De, De Valera taught above Belvedere for a short period as well. Yeah. And one that may be more familiar to our listeners throughout the UK, uh, Sir Terry Wogan was, a, mm. was a, a pupil at Belvedere as well. So it was a, it was a school that produced some very interesting and, and high achieving individuals. At Belvedere... Um, as a student there, you described yourself as part of, and the quote is, a tribe on another's turf. Now, if I kind of, my understanding of that was you were posh boys in a tough neighbourhood. And you explained that your first encounter with class struggle came when you were at Belvedere, and it was the clash between the haves and the have-nots. How was your, how, yeah, when you were growing up, how were you affected by that revelation, Patrick? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I describe working in the Vincent de Paul um, in school. I, I mean, my takeaways from that school was I've good numeracy, I've good literacy, I've a few rebel friends, um, and there was a big emphasis on what they called man for others. Um, so they were, you know, good takeaways. Was it the most in, emotionally intelligent school on the planet? No. Um, it's it, I, w- I would have said that and I think I peed in my pants on my first day in Belvedere walking into a thousand boys and that says a lot too yes. but I have to be grateful for it for lots of reasons including last week they, one of my sisters died and they invited me into a mass and how they made the connection I'm really sorry to hear that I had no idea she died in March and in November they, they, they trawled through people who've gone to the school and I'm 50 years out of the school and still you know the connection was made um, we're inviting you in um, to for a religious service for, for, you know to include others yes. and I, I, I must say I was very touched um, for, for somebody who had been a rebel in the school that they yeah. reached out <laughs> they still had you back and and when I say that one of the things too yes I did join the Vincent de Paul while I was in school and yeah we were we were uh, a, 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 it, it was a, a school fee paying school in North Inner City, which, you know, uh, boys from the North Inner City weren't in the school. Yeah. And um, yeah, we were two tribes and there was a lot of pushing and shoving and taking our caps and throwing them into the canal. And um, there was anger towards us. And uh, yeah, it was a bit scary doing that Vincent de Paul work, carrying money and going to visit elders. Um, and uh, yeah, it just, it, it, I'd make a very bad football referee because I've always had a feeling for the uh, underdog and and you know it so that I'm probably vulnerable when when something like that happens it does make me stop and think yes. you know yeah and you you grew up in an Ireland that was steeped in Catholicism now Ireland has changed 
so significantly in the last 20 years in terms of social values. Um, you, you, br- you explained that you breathed the Catholicism. It was so, it was so um, all-pervading. Um, but that was only noticeable in hindsight. Um, I know you mentioned in the book lots of confession, twice a day sometimes to get out of class. Yeah. Being a Protestant, uh, I couldn't do that, Patrick. <laughs> I used to have to pretend I was sick and go to the nurse, but that didn't, that didn't last very long. Well, that was my version of, yes. of the same thing. Yes. Yeah. But you, um, you then stepped back from Catholicism um, but you say that you held on to some of its principles, a concern for social justice being one, a love for your neighbour being another. If that's what you held on to, what did you leave behind? Well, what, like, it was, it was the wallpaper of my growing up years, and I didn't realise that till I was uh, maybe a late teen, because it was the wallpaper of everyone's life. That that it, it, with whom I um, networked, um, and I th- like I again I've reason to be grateful. I loved that they celebrate the milestones. I loved my first Holy Communion, I, and when you're from a big family, being being special for a day matters. Mm-hmm. I loved my confirmation so, so so they do ritual they do ceremony they they do celebration very very well and they they you know they, they say life the spine of life is hatch match dispatch and they had a monopoly on those things yes. and uh and, and did them extremely well and so match being the marriage yes, yes. okay cool, yeah. yes yeah. and and they have over two thousand years experience so they're at a, a an advantage um <laughs> i i suppose you know, there was all sorts of elements. One is, uh, uh, you know, it, it it started. We were the generation. I'm I am of the generation that sort of distanced from religion, from from a version of Catholicism that was all pervading. You know, too oppressive to a level, um, and started to be uncool. You know, to as well that was part of the whole metric of being 16, 17 um, and deciding to uh, move from it. So I guess I'm, you know, what did I leave behind? I, you know, I I don't bear any ill will. I'm not angry. Um, And and the the contraception piece, that was through my teens. Now, my mother handled that very diplomatically because we used to say, if this had come in earlier, how would it be for you? And she used to say, I don't know which of you I'd be without. Now, we all had somebody in our minds as to who we might be happy to be without, but she was supremely diplomatic yeah i left i left uh, i suppose it's it's regular practice behind but i mean i am respectful of people with faith-based views um i'm still open to the divine i'm still open to uh to 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 renewal um i i i you know i'm not i'm not shut down around it you mentioned kind of sixteen, seventeen. Keep me right in terms of dates and times. But after school, you volunteered at a youth club run by the Belvedere Old Boys, and I was interested to see that you explained that you were uncomfortable with what you saw as a sort of paternalistic approach taken. There was a focus on charity rather than social justice. Um, so, how important has partnership and working with others rather than doing for them or doing onto them been to you throughout your career, Patrick? Well. <clears throat> Particularly, that 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 was a very seminal experience. Um, that um, the Belvedere Youth Club was run by past pupils, as 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 you, you said, and it was um, 
in its constitution for outlet for young Christian gentlemen. And the boys in the club were interested to come on the management board and there were elements volunteering in the club that wouldn't hear of that. Um, this is run. This is an uh, an opportunity for for you know past pupils. Um, yeah, done done for you, not done with you. It, yeah, it, absolutely. So uh, we tried uh, um, a number of times to have a, a sort of a go at the board and the constitution and have it changed initially unsuccessfully and then we had a, an AGM that uh, there was always an invited speaker and a particular then rising politician um, Rory Quinn um, was the speaker that particular year at the AGM and he criticised like that was an opportunity that people normally affirmed the wonderful work we, we were doing <laughs> yes. and that the ladies committee and even that is so dated now a ladies committee who did fundraising um, he 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 instead of affirming everyone for the wonderful work we were doing challenged and said like these boys should be do, should be getting an education not ping pong yes and it rocked the, at the AGM it rocked um the, the the sort of Belvedere community and yeah it's it was the start of doing things differently yes. and it made a very big mark yes on, it did on and me. you carried that through by the time you you were at university Patrick in 1974 you had found a new value system creating what you described as well it's a new holy trinity holy trinity of socialism social justice and social work. Now, many would see this as a radical transformation, but you describe as slipping into it easily. Tell me a bit about that transition. Yeah, um, I think um, Alan Irving, if I have his name right, has this wonderful quote about uh, um, it's, it's the endless retelling of the story of a garden, a fall and a restoration, whether you're talking about the Bible, Marx or Dante. I think it captures very well that there's across the perspectives, there's hope for something better. I'm trying to think uh, the Nobel Prize winning Doris Lessing. Doris Lessing said some people, um, uh, 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 you know, so the difference between socialists and people with with religious faith is is they want their God on earth. Um, not not in the afterlife, and that that's also something something uh, illuminating in that comment she makes. But yeah, I, it was just I suppose to whom much is expected, to to whom much is given, much is expected. That would have been very implicit in my home. It would have been modelled, and it would have been spoken of. Um, and I think what came my way in Trinity College was um, a trendy radical sociology department um, and it, it it was both an act of rebellion against my home and it was also just a matter of taking what I was hearing at home but taking it a lot further. You know, if we're serious about this thing, if we're serious about equality of opportunity, if if we're, you know, if we're not going to be othering, if there's not going to be a them and an us, we need to get active around it. So I was very open to the messages. Um, and yeah. You mentioned that your sociology course was a bit of an echo chamber. I studied politics, um, albeit a couple of decades later. Um, and there's a lot of overlap with sociology and politics at university level, but I find there's actually a really broad mix of political thought in the student body that I was part of. Was yours a much more 
um, homogeneous sort of makeup. In this, in the, the student body, was everybody of a sim- sort of similar mindset in terms of your? Did they share your your holy trinity at this stage? Um, n- not everybody, not everybody. So the, but but I, my understanding of going into social work was it was change making, and mm-hmm. I know there are a lot of different models of social work. There's sort of maintenance, there's the therapeutic model, and there's a sort of socialist collectivist model, and the lot of the the book that was then very popular on the course was was radical social work and radical social work used to talk about pathologizing the individual mm-hmm. pathologizing the community and not pathologizing the socioeconomic system yes and it was pushing us into that space that that's that's where we should be so i was hearing that from sociology hearing it from that book radical social work yes in sociology the most used concept and Darendorf, Ralph Darendorf, quotes this often, is the word class okay. and social stratification. So, yeah. But after university, you began to manage your outlook somewhat. You began to incorporate the concept of individual agency alongside notions of social determinism. Um, you also began engaging more with your emotions. Uh, you talked about keeping a stiff upper lip to that point. Um, and at that stage, something fell into place for you. That was the sort of the reconciliation of inner and outer worlds. You talk about a connection between private pain and public policy. I want to know more about that, but I also want to know if that understanding immediately began to shape your social work practice, or did that come later? That that, that was a, a sort of mind-blowing experience. It was in, I think, my last or second last year in college. I went to a children's camp in Canada for the summer, as, as was done, and... Um, the person who ran it, um, a man called Lobi, was something I had never heard of called a macrobiotic. And in conversation with him, Lobi challenged me about my sort of views on social determinism and structural determinism and introduced me in a very poetic, lyrical way to the concept of individual agency. And he started with food and like challenging me around you know how i eat what i eat um and and you know you you are the point of change and that was very much his perspective you are the point of change the diet didn't work out too well for you though it diet didn't work out so well for me did you lose a lot of weight was that what happened i did lose weight and i seemed to lose um immunity in that i was picking up lots of things but but i took his point because he 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 was um it was something that I had been a bit blind around, um, and and he did open a, a wall in my mind that you need need to look inside yourself. You need to. He was saying eat seasonally, eat uh, um, locally, and I used to tease him about sorry, rice and miso soup doesn't come from my father's back garden. Yes, uh, yes uh, when you talk about, when but but we 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 shared that joke. But that was an experience. And then soon after that, when I was working in a North Inner City project, a neighborhood youth project, one of my colleagues was um, a practitioner of reevaluation co-counseling. And she was similarly, you know, start with self, look at your emotions. And um, I went to a training course there and I found it really powerful because I think the times I was brought up in the cerebral was privileged, the logic, the rationality were privileged and the mind was privileged over the heart. And 
through through interactions with her, through training by her, through some level of involvement in in reevaluation co-counseling for a period of time, it, it got me much more emotionally aware. And um, uh, now I didn't continue over a longer term with reevaluation co-counseling because I didn't seem to be open to any um, uh, broker any criticism, but I did find. This is the piece that I was missing in college. I've got the structural piece, but I didn't get, and maybe it's a thing about my own maturity, I didn't get that individual piece, looking at oneself, being more aware of one's own patterns, um, emotional patterns, patterns of your biography, etc. So I sort of brought both of those into my social work practice and I think enriched my practice enrich myself as a person, as a parent, as a husband, uh, and having been able to draw from both. And um, yeah, I always describe my social work as a waltz between the two of them. The, the fall of the Berlin Wall also marked an ideological reset for you. It was away from what you term a sclerotic socialism. Um, and you point to a shift at this stage in terms of your view of the purpose of social work. So at this stage, did you begin to afford a greater focus on the change that can be delivered at the individual level, as we were discussing? Was that a reinforcement of that that thinking? Yeah, that 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 thinking um, left me in a fog. I was politically homeless um, when the Berlin Wall collapsed, and the the the, the as 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 uh, uh, people have described it as the left were shorn of their story. Um, of shorn of their narrative. Did you have a sort of naive idea of what was behind the wall? I did, I did. I, I have a friend who um, was chatting about my love of sort of history and Russian Revolution and all that sort of, the sort of the great romanticism of that. Her response was, you never defected from East Germany to West Germany, did you, Andy? And I was like, I knew she was German, but I hadn't realised her family had, shortly before the wall came down, they had defected. That kind of put me in my place to a certain extent. Sorry to interrupt, but yes. So. And I had an exact experience uh-huh. like that. Um, when I worked in the children's camp in Canada, one of the men I worked with was uh, Romanian and he had no time for the sort of left liberal Westerners. And he said... Um, you know, it's been brutal to my family yes. and we're we're Jewish and it's been particularly brutal on that account as well. And he gave me a plate that I have still hanging 40 years later on my kitchen wall that he had made in a sense, lest you forget. Yes, yes. Uh, um, so there were a, a cluster of a, a sequence of events, including the Berlin Wall. Yes, I was naive and I actually find it... I'm disappointed in myself that I was that naive. The you know the information was out there, but I think I was. You know, I had a, what what Tony Judd describes as possibly a captive mind, um, and I had to, had to unlock it. You were still a young man though at the stage, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that's that is so, and so all those sequence of events in terms of my social work i think when i say i was politically homeless i was also a little bit in social work well where where do how do i practice and was this when you were beginning your you didn't actually begin in social work you began in youth and community work I isn't did, that right yeah, yeah yeah and that was was that in north dublin as well 
It was, yeah. And that's, from what you write in the book, the account is rather eye-opening. Can you tell us a bit what that was like, inner city North Dublin, being posh boy from Sandymount? Yeah. yeah. And not only being a posh boy from Sandymount, but a posh boy who lived in, in, in concepts and frameworks and methodologies. <laughs> yeah. uh, so your behaviour does not match my framework. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so I, I, it was an apprenticeship. Yes. And, and it was very, very valuable. And I, the piece that I liked about that, the, the Civics Institute back in the day um, developed playgrounds in certain disadvantaged areas of Dublin and they were staffed by Dublin City Council. And I worked in them for t- two years and we provided, uh, like, yes, there was the mad side of it, absolutely mad side of it, of, of um, you know, billiard balls and my bike being punctured and I was living about six miles away and um, a lot of teetering on the edge of violence and, uh, yeah, snooker cues flying through the air and snooker balls flying through the air, all of that. But we we did really good work. And the nice thing about it was it wasn't judgmental type work. It wasn't social work. It wasn't stigmatised. It was just a recreational space. And we had a free preschool in the mornings and the early afternoons. The younger kids came in and we might be refereeing a football match, pushing them on the swings. And then in the evening, the teens came in and they uh, there was bedlam. Okay, and we did our best to contain the bedlam. After that role, was that when you moved into probation service? Yeah, I moved from I my my first job after college was in the playgrounds. Then I went into the neighbourhood youth project in the north inner city, and from that into probation service. And probation in Ireland is still social work led, isn't that right? It is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But when you went into probation, you said that you became your words, not mine, a suit. Mm. So what was that experience like? I'm still wearing them. You are wearing a suit. You're very yeah. well turned out. Yeah. Um, yeah. You do talk about, you You said, um, yeah, you mentioned that in probation you were in great company following in a tradition of thinkers that were as muddled as you. Mm. Tell mm. me a bit about that. Well, I suppose the, 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 the research on probation and what works reached the Irish Republic maybe a decade later than it reached the UK um, so that there wasn't as to what works, what's effective to, to, to interrupt patterns of offending was a bit delayed coming into Irish probation practice. Hence, um, like and and I think the the I'm trying to recall the professor's name who described who used that term about rehabilitation. You know, it's it's it's, it's a sort of um, it's a great concept, but it's not well worked through. Um, what I loved, I loved the Probation Act. It's 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 this gives you your statutory role to advise, assist, and befriend. Yeah, yeah, I just think it's it's it's. You know, it's a, a, a drafts man. I'm sure it was a man at that stage, you know, with a big spirit, a big heart um, to to put it like that. And it sounds very like the corporal acts of mercy, feed the hungry, you know, water to the thirsty, yes. bury the dead, etc., etc. So I think it's a very generous spirited act. 
It's an act which was was drafted when Ireland was still part of the United Kingdom. It, yeah, exactly, yeah. and it's still 19, current. Was it 1902? Oh, 1907, so, and it's still current, uh, uh, the legislation under which probation works in the Republic. But there's a lot of other pieces of legislation allied to it for probation service. But it does give space, advise a CISPI friend, it does give space to, like, is that emotional? Is that practical? Is that, you know, uh, uh, wh- what, wh- how, how is that to be lived out in, in practice? Um, and I think because we had done Carl Rogers in college humanistic counselling because I had been involved in co-counselling. That was the approach that I used. My first job was in the prison and I that's the, 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 the practice theory I used. The research evidence points t- to cognitive behaviourism as more effective in interrupting offending patterns. So with, 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 with a heavy heart, I shifted my practice theory and my practice in the prisons to that of a cognitive behavioral type um yeah so the 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 re, it's, it, probation when i when i went in my first appointment or in probation was to the prisons and the prisons at that stage they didn't really have a dynamic of change. Mm-hmm. Um, they were containment. They were custody. They were. Uh, they had good education. They had good trade trade teaching, but the the the, the wasn't from welfare. There wasn't that sort of therapeutic input. Um, now that's changed. And pr- probation and prisons have a, have re-energized, repositioned themselves, and are much more, um, you know, about change making than they would have been in the eighties when I was in the prisons. Yes. So there's been development there. Yeah. Patrick, when I was preparing for this interview, I wanted to know what led you to write a memoir. You know, was it a case of sharing experience, helping others? Is there an element of ego in this sort of undertaking? And I thought maybe asking about ego might be a bit unfair. But then I came to the section of your book where you discuss being elected as a public relations officer for the probation officers branch of the Impact Trade Union. And that was in the mid 90s. And you explained that you liked your soapbox. You enjoyed the sound of your own voice. Uh, and you questioned whether you were on a Negro ship at the time. So with that in mind, have you asked yourself the same questions about writing the memoir? Yeah, well, I think David Beckham wrote one when he was 27. Okay. I'm 67. Um, Britney Spears one is out at the moment. I'm not sure what age. Have you read it? Uh, next week. It's it, it, Jenny <laughs> Annie seems there's, I mean, it's a, 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 she ha- she's had a terrible, terrible time of things. Uh, incredibly difficult life. I think there is, there's probably a lot to take from that. Sorry, but let's, let's yeah, yeah. focus on Patrick. But I'm here. saying this in humour. So if, if David Beckham's first mem- memoir yes. was at 27, mine is at 67. Yes. Um, I, like yeah, there. In, I guess there is an element of you know ego in telling your story. Um, yeah, uh, I can own that. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, I've, I, I mean, there's a legacy in it. There's a legacy for my young people, for my grandchildren, sort of, and there's a, 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 a social history in it. Um, it's it's a number of decades that life has moved on people's mindsets and socialization you know are somewhat different than mine was um yeah this 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 yeah it was a joy i loved it i loved writing it and it was a joy telling my story and uh you know yeah 
getting the attention that goes with that. I'm, 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 ha- yes. <laughs> I'm loving it. <laughs> good, it's good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. If we go back to when you were working um, as that elected officer with the Impact Trade Union, what was it like getting stuck into real world politics? Because this is another really interesting part of your career and mm. um, that's maybe not something that everyone would be involved in. You were involved in public affairs uh, with working with politicians. How did that um, compare? How did the reality of that role compare to the idealism of your student politics? Um, Earlier, you were asking me post Berlin Wall and that when it, you know, politically homeless. Where, um, how you know, how did I structure my work? And the anti-oppressive practice in social work talks about the the micro level, the meso level, and the macro level. And I worked with my offenders um, directly, and I then tried to equally. And with enthusiasm and with energy, work at a macro level. Um, and I found I was good at that. Um, and so when I was um, press officer for the branch of the union, we were, we, 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 like we, we ran a, a sort of an amateur press service from my home. Um, which which was like we we made contributions um, like we were in and out to the to, to the doll, the the our parliament um, briefing politicians on, for example, there is no program in the prisons for sex offenders. There is only containment. Someday they're going to be released, and you know, not the the, the, the they haven't been challenged on their actual offence. We we ran with that. The prison was the biggest um, drug treatment centre in the biggest warehouse for drug users in the country, and we made inputs on that about, you know, beefing up on therapeutic programs around drugs. Um, We also ran conferences, we published policy documents um, on workload management, on job sharing. Um, for our own organisation, which I describe as, as a meso level, but politically, like we always made pre-budget submissions for more probation officers, and um, um, so I think we our our contribution was effective. It was, um, and if, to me, it was part of the social work job as well as seeing people individually to work at an advocacy level. So between the media influencing public opinion and direct work with politicians, yeah. That's really interesting, Patrick. The advocacy at that level is, yeah, we've been something we've discussed quite a bit in the podcast um, uh, in relation to the role that social workers play as advocates at the individual level. So yeah, to see that at a higher level is really interesting at a more strategic level. But that's not the end of your career. In 2002, you took up a role as lecturer in social work and fieldwork coordinator in the School of Social Work and Social Policy at Trinity College Dublin. So back to where you trained. I know that when you were teaching, you sought to focus an understanding on the concept that there are no others, only us. Um, in your experience, do you think this concept is widely accepted within the profession? Probably not. Um, and it, it was, it, I'm not sure how much emphasis I put on it, but I was very struck by it, an exercise the students 
did in their first year when they undertook a placement in a residential centre and then the question in their written assignment towards the end was would you send a loved one to this setting and the whole tone of the writing changed yeah this is you know whether they were elders whether they were in women's refuges the whole tone changed and and the point of the exercise there are no others they there were and yeah yeah, i think it was it was a good eye-opener it's a really good question to ask. I, I interviewed some time ago Lem Say, the poet, and he talks about his childhood in care. And he is a campaigner for improvements in uh, the, the care that are provided to looked after children. And he'll say, and he means this, you know, care services should be so good that parents want their kids to be there, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and we don't aspire in that way. You know, we, I think it's incredibly helpful to frame it in that way. Would you send a loved one to this centre? Uh, yeah. It's a really good way to focus. Um but your experience as a student at TCD, uh, that stands at odds with your experience as a faculty member. What, what are the big differences that you noticed in the decades, you know, between studying and then lecturing? How had things moved on in terms of education? Well, I think my generation that went into social work were, were sort of alternative radical paradigm shifters and shakers. I think social work is now a, an allied health profession in a sense it's regulated um it's it's boundaried it's information mapped um so students it's less a statement of something alternative however i was year head of first year and i used to ask each student why social work and every almost every student where they were coming from was a humanitarian impulse. So I think that light, uh, that that flame inside people is still there in people who go into social work. Um, yeah. And you rounded out your career. Now, this is quite surprising. Um, you rounded out your career um, advising a hedge fund, mm. hedge fund cares. Mm. Tell me about that work. I mentioned it in the introduction, the, the utopian from the 1970s. I'm sure you would never have envisaged working in a role like that. Um, when was that, in the 2010s? It was, yeah, it, I worked part-time there for about four years, yeah. Part-time. Tell me a bit about that. Tell me what you learned as well, reflections on the individuals you're working with. Um, yeah, it was somebody approached the school for... Um, advice that it's in based from America by somebody who was themselves uh, abused and uh, a, a, a survivor and a thriver and a lot of money and he set this up across a number of countries um, where people working in finance um, do some fundraising for child ch- children who've been abused um, so anyway it, it came to me and I would I have availability for it? And I, I came to it with from the point of view of at the age I am, this is sort of one of the tasks is to make peace with life, mm-hmm. and I that that sort of motivated me, um, and I had no previous involvement with philanthropy, and I think of charity and I think of social justice, and philanthropy is another piece apart, um, so. My work with them, first of all, they were very impressive. The people, who, it was their humanitarian outlet 
did you have prejudices challenged in that work? Yeah. Yeah. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I what did. did it teach you there are no others, only us. Yeah. 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 That, 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 that's exactly it. That these, these were people who, that, that was, they had their day job, but they were very, very committed. And the money that we gathered in Ireland was about a hundred thousand a year. And they weren't interested in just scattering it around, but what works, what's effective, um, what's a good spend, um, and um, are these people registered with the charity regulator? You know, have they got um, pr- proper accounting accounting of their m- money spend? So it was a, a lot of learning for me. And in fact, I mentioned in the book some of the uses of the money was buying therapy for um, people who were in queues waiting for therapy who had been sexually abused. Um, it was, um, we taught I- I- infant massage to traveller moms in a part of Dublin, which is, again, uh, helps with attachment and bonding. We um, bought out a function room in a hotel that there were a lot of children living in because of the homeless situation. So it became a playroom. Um, some there's fewer and fewer teenage moms, but some who were in education um, supported sort of paying crash fees so that they could continue in their education. It was really, really effective spend. And uh, yeah, I, I I must say I, I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. As to did I wobble neoliberalism? Did I interrupt the flow of international capital? No, no. Um, we've mentioned, we're going to finish now, Patrick, but we've mentioned a couple of times in terms of economics in Ireland and also social, how, how much social change the country's gone through. Um, and that's been transformative, I think, over the last two decades, certainly. But the reality for many is that, that they're still being left behind. And the housing crisis that you just mentioned, for example, which is most acute in Dublin, is an enormous problem. In your penultimate chapter, you state that, quote, how best to organise an economy to serve the common good remains an important question to ask. So... At 67, looking back with all your experience, have you got an answer? I, I, I read a bit of uh, Tony Judd, who's deceased now, and he's both a historian and a polemicist, and he sort of talks about social democracy, you know, and I think that's the, probably the space that I belong to now. Um, and within a social democracy that there is a s- strong economy, there's a strong state sector, and that there's a strong civil sector, um, those three pillars. Um, and within the space, which I guess the real test of that space will be the climate crisis, whether it can address it. Um, but yeah, that that's where politically I position myself now. Patrick, thank you so much. I Who Had It Figured Out, you can buy it online. I'll include a, a link in the show notes so you can find it um, on Amazon. A um, couple of endorsements. Uh, Dame Louise Richardson, who former Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford, describes it as a moving and deeply humane memoir of a life lived quietly in service to others in today's Ireland. Breed Featherstone, I devoured this and I want to go back and read it again and again. It made me cry and laugh and cry again. It's a book I really enjoyed reading. Patrick, it's been wonderful having the opportunity to interview. Thank you so much for coming on to Let's Talk Social Work. Thank you, Andy. I enjoyed it. Thank you.